Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Anne McElvoy, senior editor and host of Economist Radio, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week we ask, what are the causes and effects of consumerism? Radiantly alive When your hair looks radiantly alive Then you feel radiantly alive Thanks to Shiny, happy people there being urged to consume in the golden age of advertising. But how have our consumption patterns been established and where do they lead us? It's easy to think of consumerism as a recent invention, an explosion of fashion, fridges and fads that emerged from North America and spread over the 20th century. But it has a longer and richer history and perhaps an intriguing future. Joining me to discuss the modern and historic consumer is Frank Trentman, whose new book, Empire of Things, explores how the acquisition of material possessions has shaped not just individual nations, but global history. And with us too is Brooke Unger, who has written a special report for us on the subject of consumer goods and trends. But Frank, starting with you, your book starts way back in the 15th century, takes us through to the present day, but why did you choose the starting point that you did? People, of course, always consumed. Uh, if you don't consume, you die. But there is a significant shift that first starts occurring in the 15th century and then really picks up and gathers momentum in the 17th and 18th century. In the 15th century, we already see an increase of interest in comfort, cutlery, bedding, curtains, things like that in the European Renaissance. But Equally importantly, we see an increase in porcelain and clothing and fashion in late Ming China. One new development in Renaissance Italy in particular is the growing space for private consumption. Um, public virtue, of course, had always been important and spending for cities and grand houses to show the prowess of a family had been around for a long time. But what we now see is a slight shift towards greater attention towards private spaces. So paintings, comfortable bedding, and equally important, napkins and the table. That's the household, isn't it? It's the household as a scenario to show off your wealth, but also enjoy it and enjoy the comfort. What about the external world? And perhaps as we move on into the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, there is the house, but there's also your relationship with the outside world. And how does that affect consumerism? No, good point. I mean, one thing I think we have to bear in mind that in spite of the uptake in processions in the 15th and 16th century, many, many obstacles remained in place. And one very important obstacle was a moral cultural fear that the personal or private pursuit of goods was letting down the community. 
And here's a big shift in the 17th and 18th century because you now have arguments that the private pursuit of possessions in fact enriches a society, makes the economy stronger and makes the nation more powerful. The classic argument was really made by David Hume who makes the point and the pursuit of modest luxuries could foster innovation, the pursuit of far and distant places, experimentation with new technologies. And in the course of that, you would have economic growth and the economic growth would then allow a state to pay for more powerful armies and navies. It's very interesting that before Adam Smith, there's David Hume, a Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, saying this is not necessarily only a selfish or a bad thing to to indulge yourself. And as we then move out of that world where you feel that there's a negotiation going on about whether it's okay to to have luxury, what are the changing points for you? The French Revolution, that must be something of a shake-up in in the world of frills. Not as much as you would expect, in fact. They tried briefly to introduce republican fashions, and make people more modest and frugal. But the interesting thing is by the late 18th century, consumer culture is now so deeply entrenched that political movements and political ideologies, French Revolution, American Revolution, later on Marxism, completely fail to dislodge it. So it's there. It's now deep in society. And what regimes learn, including fascism and also Stalin, is to make their peace with the aspiration for a better material life. One thing perhaps to add to that is I think a a very important turning point in the late 19th, early 20th century, which is that consumers themselves or people, I should say, people suddenly start to talk of themselves as consumers and they see themselves not just as individual customers, but political beings. So the consumer voice is articulated much more powerfully in boycotts and social reform movements. And consumers see themselves as citizens, first and foremost. Brooke you've consumed Frank's book, but you've also written in this territory a lot yourself. What did you find particularly interesting or challenging in the new account? Well, I think the thing that came across to me most strongly was the sense of the multifariousness of consumption. As you point out, a lot of people tend to think of consumption as being sort of a non-spiritual thing or as being something that is in some way inimical to social life. And what I think you show is the extent to which it infuses virtually everything we do and that different cultures conceive of consumption very, very differently. I mean, you point out at one stage, for example, that consumption in the West tends to be very much a private thing. But in the East, in Asia, it tends to be very much a social thing. People spend huge amounts of money on on weddings and funerals. And so it has a very different sort of salience for those two different cultures. You write at another point that religion is infused with things. And so you break with the lazy discourse about consumption, that it sort of just means materialism, that it's a flattening of life. Well, Frank, picking up Brooke's thought there, do you think that you're responding in this book to a perception that consumerism is something, if not negative, but that it's just kind of a fact of life and it's associated with accumulation and greed when it's in fact much more nuanced? Yes, I agree. That's the dominant view, that consumption is something frivolous and superficial and everyone would be better off if we did less of it. I think that view is too simple. And I don't think it takes sufficiently into account 
just how much cultural and social meaning different forms of consumption have had over time and continue to this day, including religious movements who live in a kind of symbiosis with consumer culture and use radio tapes and advertising to promote their own spiritual wares. Where the argument becomes more interesting is when you add to the old social and cultural critique an environmental critique. And that's, I think, where the crunch is and the paradox that on the one hand, consuming enriches our lives, but at the same time, of course, it is not sustainable, the current levels we're having. So that's the paradox that the social and political benefits are balanced by environmental costs. And when does the environmental consumer or the environmentally conscious consumer begin? Because there was always that awareness, and I'm thinking back to Little Women, Louisa M. Alcott, that very sort of conscious role that fashion plays in those novels, and yet at the same time, there is a little bit of a, you have to be careful here, you know, you've got to be careful with resources, don't you know there's a war on? That tension around consumers, I think one of the most That's interesting right. things about that book. That's right. I think consumption has always been complemented by a debate about a virtuous, um, careful management of resources, be it at the level of the household, the nation or the empire. And that, not surprisingly, always reaches fever points in preparation and during war. So the first world war is a classic case. In many countries, for the first time, consumer bodies are formed and their main purpose is not to indulge themselves, but to conserve scarce resources. The difference with the environmental movement today is that in earlier periods, you have a sense of national resources, perhaps particular global resources, food in particular. But now we have a planetary view, which is all-encompassing. Well, I think that the idea that there are different cultures of consumption still is is very much the case. Although I would say, I mean, my, my own sort of personal observation from, from wandering around Asia a bit is that the social aspect of consumption in those cultures is becoming less prevalent and the private nature of consumption, this more Western nature of consumption, this more individual nature of consumption is becoming sort of more prevalent. I came across an interesting example of what you refer to, Brooke, when I was traveling in China. I was in a modestly well-off household and they'd kept the cardboard boxes that good whiskey brands come in and displayed them to show that they'd drunk them, which seemed to bridge what you're talking about, the private consumption, but the look at what we did. There is, of course, a debate whether we're also seeing the reverse shift in the West, a shift away from individualism to sharing, the sharing economy, collaborative consumption. I mean, one thing we have seen, and which I think will be a big change in the years to come, is, of course, an attack on public consumption and social spending. And that social spending underpinned mass consumption after the Second World War. So if you cut into that, it might very well leave consequences in the vibrancy of consumer culture. And I would add to that that what we've seen at present of the sharing economy, a lot of these sharing sites, whether it's sharing apartments or sharing cars, frees up purchasing power. Right. I mean, that's just, that is the irony. So it reinforces, in fact, uh, consumer culture. But, but perhaps also worth saying is that, um, you know, sharing economy has become the fashionable word of, of the year. But if you step back a little bit, a lot of consumption has always involved sharing. Households share cooking and eating. The public sector, both at the level of 
you know, the nation state has involved sharing, but cities, I mean, municipal pools are a way of sharing. So I'm not entirely sure that it's something radically new. What is new is that it commercializes or monetizes particular forms of private possession and access to private commodities, which hadn't been yet commercialized in the past. So two experts on consumption in front of me in the studio. What's their own relationship with shopping and consumption? Brooke Anger. Well, I have a closer relationship with consumption probably than I do with shopping. I think that's one of the things we're talking about is the distinction or shopping as a subset of consumption. So I would have to say, I would have to confess to being a pretty enthusiastic consumer of what I take to be the good things in life, you know, music, theater, travel, stuff like that. But, you know, I don't spend a lot of time on Oxford Street. We won't find you down at the mall looking for that jeweled watch that you always hankered for. And Frank, you're sitting in a very splendid red sports shirt in front of me with the Lacoste label on it. So the branded goods thing clearly got to you in a way. Uh, not particularly. In the case of this shirt, it's the particular weave and feel of the uh, cotton that, that I like. And I'd be happy if they produced it without a crocodile. But my weak spots are also, one One of them is music, all kinds of music. One thing I became very interested in writing this book is exploring different national and regional music cultures. So I have shelves bursting with Italian popular music from the 60s to the present. I have Finnish tango. I have Indian music and much else. The other thing I should confess is that I have a weakness for cheese. There's hardly a dinner where I wouldn't say, oh, could I have some cheese now? And that in itself is, I think, interesting because cheese after dinner really has become a habit and a lot of consumption and how we consume is is a matter of habit rather than discretionary choice. Yes, well, I wish the odd bit of after-dinner cheese was the worst of my consumer excesses. Frank Trentman, Brooke Unger, thank you both very much. You've been listening to The Economist Asks with me, Anne McElvoy. Do tweet us your thoughts about this or any other show. In London, this is The Economist. There's no other shampoo like Liquid Prell. Liquid Prell is extra rich. That's why it leaves your hair looking radiantly alive. How gloriously different Liquid Prell is from thin, watery, and wasteful shampoos or thick, sticky ones that can actually dull your hair. Wonderfully different Liquid Prell is extra rich. Every emerald green drop bursts into luxuriously rich lather that leaves your hair looking radiantly alive. And you feel so radiantly alive. Thanks to Prell, Liquid Prell, the extra rich shampoo. And you certainly are lovely, Trudy. Hey. 
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.